This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. I'm Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz. Thanks for listening. This is episode 52, and I'll be talking about how good things come to an end. Or at least to an end of things of how they've been. I'm going to be talking about an eight-year play-by-post AD&D campaign that just wrapped up a major story arc, and could potentially be the end of the campaign itself, depending on what the players want to do. I'll also touch briefly on how Dungeon 23 is going for me, as I've been plugging away steadily at it, and I just completed my sixth level. The show notes will include links to the archives of this play-by-post campaign that I'm going to talk about, where you can read up on the adventures of a brave party in my Chronicles of Etanera world, if you would like to do that. So let's talk about possible ending of things. But to do that, I need to go back a little bit in history. When I started creating Etnera back in 2009, part of my participation in the quote-unquote OSR and my rediscovery of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, I wanted to play as many games as possible. I had a tabletop campaign going, so I decided to start a play-by-post campaign in another part of my world. Now, to make sure that I didn't have any overlap between the two groups, I chose an area as far away from the tabletop folks as possible. And since it would take approximately a game year or so to navigate from one end of my continent to the other on horseback, I felt that I'm going to push these guys way off into the corner somewhere. And I felt confident that the two parties wouldn't have a chance to mix and meet. Which is good because if you've ever done a play-by-post game before, by its nature you've probably experienced that it moves a lot more slower pace than face-to-face games just by the virtue that you're writing something and then you're waiting for somebody to answer back and for something that could take 10 minutes in a face-to-face discussion could take three to four days. So things tend to move slower. So back in 2009, there was this technology called uh, Wave. It was called Google Wave. It's kind of hard to explain, but it was a collaborative discussion slash document technology that included multimedia, it included threaded conversations, and it was a pretty cool environment for sharing things. So from about 2009 till about 2012, I ran a play-by-post game there, and I think it was, if I remember correctly, for about four to five players. Unfortunately, Google killed that in 2012, so I wasn't able to continue on there but um the campaign itself centered around the port city of Scalfir, which serves as or used to serve as a mainland connection to the island city of ramathia now this island city was very famous very large uh, cosmopolitan kind of place despite being out on an island But as a result of the cataclysm that had struck my campaign world approximately 55 years prior to when everything was going, um, the island city was lost. And as a result, then Skullfear had declined and was kind of somewhat on shaky legs, whether it was going to survive or maybe succumb to banditry and and just general, you know, um, people leaving and decay and whatnot. I know, it's not the most original of fantasy settings, but 
like all good things, you know, it took time, it grew, and very much as a result of the players, there was a lot of foundation that we laid in those three years. Now, once Google Wave had shut down, I also found myself taken away for um, about three years with some things going on. But in 2015, I wanted to restart this play-by-post game. Um, it was a second go, and I had a fairly new set of players, but I did have a couple of players from the original uh, instance come back. Uh, one of them was Alan, who played the fighter Takashi, and Joe, who played a stout and very fervent cleric of the light, and his name was Callan. Now, there's a third player, uh, Gabriel, who has been around for quite a while. I don't remember if he was part of the first initial go or not, but he definitely has been a part of uh, my campaign world for a long time. And Gabriel plays Atticeus, who is a littling thief. Now, at first, we played on a server that ran an instance of Wave, the Wave technology. Um, but in 2019, we moved to Discord and we've played there ever since. So across 14 years, you know, first for three years and then for eight years, um, we've gamed in this just wonderful campaign. Uh, it, it's just been so wonderful to play with these guys. I mean, we've had some pretty memorable moments and exchanges. And, um, you know, it, it's been <laughs> neat to, to do this with these guys over that long period of time. Now, for the past eight years, there's been a central theme and an arc kind of come out of the campaign. Um, and I'll try to explain this fairly quickly. I don't want to go in a lot of et and Aaron lore and things that, you know, are going to seem kind of non sequitur out of place and have no context. But basically the players came to know of a mage's secret library and they, you know, being adventurers, they delved it. Um, they discovered some information that was invaluable to the elves of my world. And elves of my world are not woodland uh, creatures. They are actually a seafaring race. Well, the elves decided to act on this information, and as a result, they invited the players to go with them on a quest to this abandoned island city of Ramathia. Well, of course, you know, PCs being PCs, they went, um, and they made it to the island uh, after fighting off some megalodon-like uh, sharks. Um, they had quite a number of adventures in this lost city itself. They met some of the wild folk who still inhabited this island, and then the PCs found what the elves were looking for, clues and pointers to where the elves had actually landed on that island in the first place, because when the elves initially came to the lands of men many, many, you know, millennia ago, um, they first arrived at the island of Vermathia, but the location had been lost. And the elves were looking for this first landing because they wanted clues to find their lost and forgotten homelands, which the elves have not been able to find. Now, as a result of finding this information, then it was revealed that a splinter faction of elves who wanted to do something different with this information, they decided to take matters in their own hands. Uh, they were present in this expedition, so they kidnapped an important elder of the elves who had been along on this expedition, and they set off to the location where they thought the first landing was. So the PCs pursued them, you know, and there was a dangerous dungeon delve because the PCs wanted to try to arrive at this location first, and unfortunately they weren't. Uh, the elves had gotten there first. So then there was a pretty cool boss fight, which involved a magical artifact, 
and the PCs succeeded. They managed to stop the Splinter Elves from doing what they wanted to do. Now, what was interesting is because of this, I finally got to pull the curtains back on something that the PCs didn't know, was that the elves didn't lose a homeland. They are actually refugees from under the oceans. Land elves evolved from sea elves. And they found out that the sea elves are actually a very warlike race. Um, the elves that had fled the sea elves were refugees. But the splinter faction was all, you know, well, we want to reunite with our true heritage and become the true elves that we were meant to be and, and so on. But it didn't happen. The PCs managed to, you know, interrupt their plans. And it looks like the PCs succeeded in preventing this from happening. Or so they think. <laughs> anyway. So this was an eight-year arc, and it finally wrapped up this week. And, you know, it's been great that we've been playing for eight years, but that is also a very long, long time to have any sort of a campaign, much less a play-by-post campaign. I mean, I, I've seen my players have families. I've seen their kids born or grow up. I've seen them change their careers, have many, you know, major things happen. I mean, hell, we survived a pandemic together. And, uh, you know, for these players, their situations have changed enough that I had to ask the question, okay, now that you're finished with this major arc, do you actually want to continue? And that was tough to ask. I mean, mm -hmm. I've known since well, December when they started on the final leg of this arc, I knew that this moment was going to come, you know. One player had kind of already faded a little bit in 2022 as, you know, job and life took them away. And, and uh, another one had a serious time crunch and little bandwidth. So they only participated, you know, once every couple of weeks or so. And a third player was coming in about once a week. You know, their life was pretty complicated. So, you know, I thought, hey, you know, it's time to give them the chance to gracefully step away. And, and you know, when I asked it, I was honestly okay with either answer. We had hit a major thing. We had done what I had hoped. We had explored together a major location in my game world. We got to dive into some really cool things, that, you know, a good chunk of lore and a connection to things that are happening in the present, you know, was, was made. And, and, you know, the world was affected by their actions. You know, what more could I ask for out of a campaign? You know, as they say, all good things have to come to an end. And they knew that if we were going to end, it was better to end it now. High note, you did the thing. Awesome way to go. You know, maybe this is the time to do it. Um, fortunately, it seems like only two of the players are going to retire so far. Um, the, the players of Takashi and Callan, who or characters that have been in this from the beginning, um, they're going to step away, which makes sense. They're the ones whose lives have changed the most. So the characters had started to set down roots in a small area uh, in my campaign world. They kind of adopted a village called Appleton, and so that's where the PCs are going to go retire to become NPCs. Fortunately, the... Um, the other four main players, Derek, who plays a, a young fiery mage, I mean, literally, he just bursts in a flame sometimes. Uh, his name is Bellish. Um, Gabriel, who I mentioned, who plays the, the littling halfling thief named Adiseus, um, a relatively newcomer in this game, um, name of Jeff C., 
Uh, he plays the stout fighter Sinric. They're all going to continue playing, as is my friend Chris, who plays an Elven Mage, Gryon. So either way, I'm happy to say it seems like Scalfier is going to continue to have heroes around and very active. So, you know, another chapter closes and, and another will start. I guess in the end, good things indeed did come to an end, but new things are coming soon. I do apologize for the buzzing of my phone. Um, apparently, when I decided to sit down and record this podcast, everybody decided to start <laughs> messaging me. So I have put myself on Do Not Disturb for the remainder of this episode. So let's talk about Dungeon 23. So Dungeon 23 is still going on, and I'm still very much working on it, and I'm even running the Black Maw. Um, I, in January, I started a campaign using the Mega Dungeon that I'm still building, and I've had the good fortune of having about four to six players uh, meet fairly regularly. I mean, we've dropped a couple due to you know them figuring out that the schedule in life wasn't going to let them continue on very long. Now, as I mentioned before, I'm creating this dungeon with an OD&D focus as versus AD&D. Um, I have ventured into AD&D territory simply because I was creating the dungeon using the random dungeon generator that's found in Appendix A of the first edition Dungeon Master's Handbook, or Dungeon Master's Guide. Dungeon Master Handbook is my podcast. Sorry about that. Um, now, interestingly, though, a good portion of that appendix was originally published in Strategic Review Number 1, which came out in the spring of 1975, almost a year after the original publication of D&D and the Three Little Brown Books. So the solo dungeon adventure article definitely is something that was used during the OD&D years, and you can clearly see that it and the Appendix A from the Dungeon Master's Guide are, are fairly similar. The, the Appendix has a few extra options, but by and large, they pretty much work the same. Anyway, so the monsters, the NPCs, their belongings, the treasure, what have you, and, and just the general approach is geared towards OD&D, such as with you know treasure types and... Uh, determinations of what's in the rooms and whatnot. Um, now, to populate the dungeon, though, I have turned to the um, TSR Monster and Treasure Assortment books to help kind of give me some ideas on what to put into the dungeon. They give a nice spread of monsters, and, and it's a fairly decent, you know, number amount, and it, it makes a lot of sense for, you know, uh, populating non-layer type rooms. Um, so, so I'm not as impressed with the treasures. So I've taken to going back to either generating them using OD&D rules, uh, you know, the layer treasure when appropriate, or the unguarded, you know, you just find treasure in a room kind of a table that they have. So, and I adjust it for the monster as I see fit. Now, for the first several le levels. I primarily use the Appendix A, which I call the Gygax Dungeon Generator. But last month, I used a completely different tool. I kind of wanted to change it up. Um, I had a set of cards that I had picked up from a Kickstarter back in 2015, and that was called the Dungeon Architect Cards. And I had just found them shoved in the back of the bookshelf, and I thought, hey, let's give them a try. Um, they gave a fairly serviceable result. You know, there was some tweaking, refinement on my part, um, wasn't impressed with how the corridors hooked things up and kind of a, you know, it was it was a very much a left, right, up, down type of dungeon. Now, 
for this month, I'm actually combining the two. You know, I'm, I'm using the Gygax generator for the passages, the doors, and, and the contents of the various rooms and, and where people find things. But for the rooms themselves, the shapes, the layouts, you know, the actual different type of room, I'm still pulling the cards and, and using those. And some of those rooms are pretty big. And so what I've taken to doing is inside those very large rooms, I'm actually going back to my youth and looking up some of the old Ultima computer game dungeon maps to put them inside of those big rooms. And that's because those smaller dungeons were very, well, they were very small. You know, I, I think Ultima 3 was a 16 by 16 block grid. And so I can condense that down into, you know, a 7 by seven or an eight by eight um, square space, and we'll see what happens. Now, for the empty rooms, I first started off with trying to put something in a description for each empty room, and, and that just got a little too much. So I've kind of pulled back where now I have a general idea of what the rooms in the level are gonna look like, um, but you know, I'll note something if the room is empty, if there's something special about the room. And I've got some generators that, you know, tell me, hey, you know, is there a different smell or a sound or is there an odd item or a sight to be found, what have you. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of leaving it open-ended and letting the player and the game going to decide if these little things that they find are actually relevant or not. Because I've often found that player imaginations take these things in more wonderful directions than I could even do that, though. Now, as far as the the levels themselves and the themes, uh, the first couple of levels, they were kind of random in nature in terms of, you know, what, what monsters were in there, what kind of factions, what was going on. But as we've gotten more to the mid-levels, I've changed that. You know, the, it, there's a theme that's emerging about the existence and the purpose of this dungeon, which I called the Black Maw. I'm still not, though, 100% certain how this ends. You know, there is a story and a history that's slowly coming out. And I obviously, you know, as things go on, I reserve the right to go back and edit it. But there's still a couple of big questions to be answered, such as why is this dungeon semi-sentient? Why does it want to kill everything? Why are there so many prisoners stuck in here? And you know what? Those big questions may never get answered by me. It may need to get answered in emergent play. Or it could be that the Black Maw just is because that's what it is. But I gotta tell you, it's been kind of fun digging through all this. Uh, and another thing that's been fun is the sub-levels. Smaller levels, more focused, and definitely these have been thematic areas. Um, a couple of them I paid homage to David Arneson and Gary Gygax. Uh, one of them I paid a little homage to one of the coolest levels that I ever played in a CRPG, and that's um, one of the levels in Diablo 3. I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but uh, if the players run into it and if if they played Diablo 2, not Diablo 3. They played Diablo 2, and they especially enjoyed uh, Loot Galane. They're going to recognize this level right off. And it is a crazy level because I do some really odd, interesting things in it. Again, I can't talk about it. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm leaving these open-ended spoilers. Hopefully when we get to the end of the year and maybe the players have gotten that far or if the campaign's ended, I can go into more detail. But I have been working on my imagination. Um, so the 
Speaking of the campaign, that's been progressing very nicely. Uh, the players have been exploring a portion of the first level. I have had two PC deaths. Uh, one was from combat, took a uh, mace upside the head, and the magic user wasn't going to live very long. Um, and another one triggered a particularly devastating trap on a treasure chest, which, if they had paused for a moment and said, I examined the area around the trap, they would have seen the glowing glyphs. But apparently they were just too excited to finally have found something. They ran straight up to it, and all that was left was a big toe. Oops. Um, the PCs are getting smart, though. They're recruiting some denizens that they found within the dungeon to help them. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And they've also been exploring a little bit outside the dungeon. They found the associated town. Uh, it's called Oily Messy. And it comes straight out of a spaghetti western, complete with a crazy doctor, a take-no-crap sheriff, and an evil town mayor who is up to no good. And I've also created a hex map for the, where the Black Maw is on, so the island awaits the players to explore a little bit further. Now, for me so far, I'm really happy with my Dungeon 23 experience. Um, you know, sitting down every day and getting to create a little bit and then putting it, you know, aside. You know, I've seen across the internet where, you know, things have kind of died down. It started off with a bang back in January. Everybody was, you know, all crazy and posting about it. But definitely over the past six weeks or though, I've noticed a definite decrease in the number of posts and blog posts and you know, Reddit threads and whatnot in people that are actually participating. And that kind of makes sense, you know. It's hard to do something regular every day for an entire year. That's not easy. I'm glad it's working out for me, and I'm glad that for the people that are sticking with it, it's still working out for them. And I can't wait to see what happens when I get to level 12 and finally get to the end of the Black Maw. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll let me know what you think. I don't have any call-ins to play to or respond right now, but I'm always happy to hear what you have to say and put you on this podcast so others can hear you as well. The show notes will have ways that you can reach out to me. So, until next time, be well and game on.